Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face MBC alone. Today, we get to hear from a group of women who are all diagnosed with MBC at stage four from the beginning. About 6 to 10% of all people living with MBC in the U.S. today were diagnosed de novo. I joined our panel along with Shante Drakeford, Delta James, and Anne Woodward. Each of these women have different types of MBC and have lived with this disease for varying lengths of time. But all of us can agree that the de novo MBC diagnosis presents some unique challenges. We're here to talk about all of it. Our guest moderator is Miranda Gonzalez, a Houston-based mom of five who was affected by early-stage breast cancer five years ago and is currently an important member of our podcast team as an advocate for all members of the breast cancer community. We're so lucky to have Miranda with us today, and all the time, here she is. As Lisa mentioned, Today, we'll be talking with women who are sharing their stories in regards to receiving a de novo metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. A de novo diagnosis refers to breast cancer that's first diagnosed when it's already spread outside of the breast to other parts of the body. Patients diagnosed with de novo MBC are not people who've received an early stage diagnosis only to have it reoccur. Rather, they are just starting out as metastatic. I had never heard the term de novo breast cancer until I met my friend Delilah. She was a young mother who had moved to Houston to receive treatment at MD Anderson for her de novo diagnosis. I began to scour the internet to learn all I could about this word and this world. The more time I spent in the cancer community, the more I saw the divide between people diagnosed with early stage breast cancer and people living with an MBC diagnosis. This is disheartening and unacceptable to me. We're all living in this crazy cancer world. Why should we not all provide support to each other? My hope is that by listening and helping to share stories of real people going through life with an MBC diagnosis, that more early stagers like me will come to understand the realities of what breast cancer truly are. First up on our panel today is Anne. So I was diagnosed in December of 2015, and I had no idea that was anything wrong with me. I woke up and happened to be in great pain from something that we discovered later on was actually gallbladders. But so that pain took me to the doctor, and he sent me for a CT scan, and then it felt like being called to the principal's office. We need you to come back to the office for a blood test. And I was escorted into his office, and my husband and I looked at each other and said, this isn't good. And he told us that I had lesions on my liver and that we needed to find out what they were. And then after that, I don't really remember anything of most of the conversation or most of the day. But so I had excessive Mets to my liver, very aggressive. And we started that month doing all the, the things that you do and trying to get a handle. And the one thing I would say about really feeling dropped into something I didn't know very much about. Never been sick a day in my life, never spent a night in a hospital yet still. And the only frame of reference we had was my ex-sister-in-law had metastatic breast cancer and she had a terrible 
couple of years with mobility and pain and surgeries. So that was our only frame of reference going in was what we knew about her. So it was, it was a pretty scary start for us on many levels. And then just for a little fun note, I'll say I got my port put in on New Year's Eve. So we spent New Year's Eve out of port surgery. So yeah, that's how we started. All right, Lisa, why don't you give us a little bit of background into the story of your diagnosis and what it was like? Sure. So I've had a baseline of mammograms and ultrasounds since I was 35. And I did that because I have all this breast cancer in my family. We don't have the BRCA gene, but everyone in my family older than me on my mother's side, every single woman gets breast cancer. It's like clockwork. You turn 57 you get breast cancer. If you're like um, a little slow to the table, maybe you're 65, but you always get it early stage. And in the case of my Nana, she got it in 1971 and she was told to get her house in order and she lived till she was 95. So that's the mantra in our family. Everyone gets breast cancer. So I knew I'd get it, but I was only 51 when I kept on going back to my OBGYN and saying, my breast tissue does not feel right. Let's do another ultrasound and mammogram. So I kept on going back and I went back two separate times, two months apart. And at the last mammogram and ultrasound, everyone looked at the, at the films. They said, there's no cancer here. You're fine. Six months later, I went back and said, my nipples are now inverted. This is breast cancer. I'd like an MRI and I'd like to get a biopsy. They did that. And it was then we discovered that I needed to have a full body scan. And that's when they discovered it was stage four. So I, I was shocked not to have breast cancer. I was shocked to have stage four breast cancer and literally probably five years of mammograms and ultrasounds were basically wasted film because I'm a mixed lobular and ductal breast cancer subtype. And so my cancer was not detected in a lump. I've never had a lump. So that's what happened when I was first diagnosed. And it was four years ago now. And it was a shock to myself, to my husband, to my family, since I thought I was doing everything right. So I was really shocked when I realized I didn't catch it in time. Shantae, what about you? Can you give us a little bit of background into your diagnosis? Yes, I'm a military spouse. And so I've lived all over Alaska, Georgia, Washington State. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. And my story is a bit different from Lisa and almost an opposite avenue. I started exhibiting like symptoms of what I believe was breast cancer at the age of 25. And it was the day after my husband returned from Iraq. And I immediately started having nipple discharge and I'm a medical professional. I'm a nurse and I've been a nurse for about 15 years. I'm a nurse practitioner now. So I never really been afraid to just find out what's happening with my body. So I went immediately like the next day and say, hey, what is this nipple discharge? I've never been pregnant. I don't have any kids or anything. The idea was to him come home from war and we just have a ton of kids. And uh, eventually I end up with infertility, but I went in and I told my husband, I was like, geez, I'm so excited to see you. I got nipple discharge. I went in, they was like, they gave me an ultrasound and said, this is normal. There's no need to do any further testing. You're young. You don't have nothing to worry about. You got fibrocystic breasts and kind of dense tissue and your nipple discharge is yellow. So that's normal. Not unless it turns bloody, then you return. 
So maybe probably I was living with probably three years and the nipple discharge turned eventually bloody. So I was just like leaking everywhere all the time. And when I asked about a mammogram in the beginning, they was like, no, we'll just give you like an ultrasound once a year. You don't need to, the unnecessary radiation. I was like, are you sure? And it was like, okay. By this time I developed the lump. So those little fiber assisted lumps that they saw became bigger and you could feel it and it turned bloody. So I got a little concerned. I was like, Hey, what's this about? Check this out. And I knew that you can biopsy cysts because not all cysts are normal is what they tell you though. They was like, Oh no, you don't need a mammogram. We'll just take that breast duct out. That's causing this nipple discharge and you'll be fine. They took the breast duct out and I asked them, could they drain the cyst because I was having a lot of discomfort during my periods. It would hurt very, you know, intensely. And they say, we'll take it out. I got up from surgery. That cyst was still there. And it wasn't on my consent that they said I could. It's not it wasn't on my consent that would say you could have this cyst drained. So because it wasn't on there, the only thing that said was to remove the breast duct. The nipple discharge stopped. But I still had a lot of discomfort in, with that cyst. And again, I'm asking for mammograms and they will only still only offer ultrasound and got to the point where they were really only ultrasound, not both of my breasts, but just the area of my discomfort. And I was like, why don't you just do the whole thing? This is all I'm able to get. Just give me the whole thing. They didn't do that. So six years had went by and the duck, they did do a biopsy. They said it was introductory papilloma, nothing to be concerned about. It's benign. I'm still young. I'm going through infertility treatment. And I think this is what boomed everything because the year after my infertility treatment in 2015, at the age of 31, I was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer that went to my rib, my hip, my spine. And I was just like, what? And what prompted it was that the lymph, the lump turned hard and maybe a few months before it turned hard, it was soft. And my breast surgeon was like, oh, just take some evening primrose. It's probably scar tissue from the surgery. <laughs> still dismissing everything. Still didn't even offer me a mammogram, even though I asked, still told me no. And then because it turned hard, they immediately sent me to get an MRI. And once I got the MRI, they called me the next day and told me to come get a mammogram and an ultrasound. And then during the biopsy, they was asking me questions about my family history. I don't have a family history of it. My aunt had just got diagnosed with DCIS just from her routine screening, but no one had it in my family. And I started panicking because they told me they saw an abnormal lymph node and I'm like, do it look bad? And so they initially told me I was stage three, but a week later, after I had all my scans, when I was supposed to get my port placed and do the whole IV, chemo, mastectomy, and radiation, they told me that it spread all over and we're not doing that. And I was shocked because I already started telling my family I had cancer. So now I got to go back and tell them I got stage four. What's interesting to me is that um, even with the timeline difference between you and Lisa, you both encountered these obstacles getting to your diagnosis. And it sounded like you both fought as much as you could. I think it just really goes to show the importance of being your own advocate and 
making sure that we trust our bodies and we just don't give up and we keep asking and we keep asking. Last, we're going to hear from Deltra. Deltra, can you give us a little bit of a background on your diagnosis in your life? So in summer of 2019, I discovered a lump in my left breast. I had not, I don't even think I was doing a self-exam. I was just aware and noticed it there. I wasn't alarmed at all because there was no history in my family as far as I knew. But of course, I still wanted to go and get checked out. So I scheduled an appointment with my doctor. And I'm really grateful that my doctor heard me out, took things seriously despite me being young and despite me not having a history that we knew of. I was 33 years old and my doctor, she didn't seem very concerned, but she went ahead and scheduled me an ultrasound later that same week. Then at the ultrasound, the tech started looking concerned and that's when I got concerned and she called in, I believe it was a doctor or the person who reads the ultrasounds. She called in a man and he looked concerned as well, but he just turned to me and was like, you're young and it's probably just cysts or fibroids, something. So I wasn't too alarmed. And they went ahead and scheduled a biopsy for me the following week. At the biopsy, which was the first time I was ever having one, so I was pretty nervous. They talked me through what was going to happen. Very kind breast surgeon. And she made it much more pleasant and painless experience than some stories I've heard. And she just looked at me and let me know no matter what it is, cancer or not, we'll get through this stuff together. So... I wasn't sure exactly when I would hear back and get results. Of course, I was an anxious mess and just trying to distract myself in the following days. But overall, me and my family, especially the women in my family, my mom, my sister, were really not worried. And then I believe it was two days after getting the biopsy, I got a phone call and it was the doctor who did my biopsy. And she was like, I never do this, but I'm about to go on vacation. And so I couldn't call you in the office. But I wanted to let you know that your results came back and unfortunately it's cancer. And then I don't really remember what she said after that, but everything in the next few weeks was really a blur. But looking back and hearing other stories, I'm really grateful because I didn't have to do a lot of advocating for myself. And at that time, I'm not sure I would have known exactly what to even ask for, but her team was just very on top of things. Initially, she thought just like guessing from the size of the tumor and everything that I might be like stage two, possibly three. And so I just was clinging to that and just ready to get all the information and basically getting my mind in that battle mode. But she ordered all the scans, bone scans, full body scans, everything. And everything was coming back clear until I had a a full body scan, or it may have been like a chest and pelvic scan. And they saw a little spot on my liver and she was like, don't even worry about it. Like everyone has some stuff in their liver and didn't really worry about it. I was like, let's just get this liver biopsy over and done with. They really were waiting to have a full understanding of what was going on in my body before they came up with a treatment plan. And the following week, they got the results back from the liver biopsy. And I just remember going in thinking, okay, I'm going to just be told it's nothing and we're just going to, let's do this, get right into mastectomy, whatever time she thought maybe a lumpectomy and some radiation would be the path I would be on. 
But she told me, and probably the best way you could tell someone this news, I don't even fully remember, but she just let me know. Unfortunately, it did come back that the liver was breast cancer, which means it's metastasized. And so I was just, of course, trying to process all that going from boom, I'm thrown into the cancer world to thrown into the subcategory of being stage four. So that was definitely, like Shanti said, a lot to process, a lot to share with family. At the time, I had only shared with family and a couple of very close friends. And it was hard to let them know that not only was it cancer, but stage four. Thank you, ladies, for sharing that. Just very powerful stories. So the next question I have A lot of times, it seems, just from what I've noticed in the breast cancer community, that a lot of us don't even know what metastatic breast cancer is. So my next question for you ladies is, what was your perception of MBC? What was your family's perception? And how did you share it? And you mentioned that your husband was with you. Can you talk a little bit about that to us? Yeah. When I had called to tell him I was going to the doctor because I was having these sharp pains, somehow he knew to come. And so he met me for the CT scan and I, he just had this sort of sixth sense that he needed to be around that day. And then we, we went home after the second visit with my doctor. And we did tell both our parents that first day, cause we were in such a state of shock that I think we just, he told them I, I couldn't speak for about three weeks. He did all the hard conversations, thankfully, but we then chose not to tell anybody else until we had an answer to a question, because we didn't want to just get a bunch of questions that we didn't have the ability to answer. And then that was just going to be an emotional roller coaster. So I went into work the next day and we trudged through and I did tell my boss because I had to be in and out for biopsies and whatnot. And everybody knew something was up with me, but we just didn't share anything. And my perception is, as I mentioned previously, was my sister-in-law had been diagnosed metastatic about a year and a half before me. And she had been early stage. She was even DCIS. We weren't that close, but I had seen her experience to date in those 18 months. And it was a very scary thing to think about. That is what was going to be in front of me, the experience that my sister-in-law had been having. So that was where we started from a, a very scary place. She had hip replacement, spine fusions, very immobile. And so we started from a, a really scary place from a perception standpoint and didn't know anything really at all of what treatments might be or this and that. Because again, we just saw what was happening with her. We didn't know a lot about you know the treatments she was undergoing or anything like that. So we didn't really share until we had something to share. And because I started with AC chemo, which I now understand is not a first-line standard of care when you're diagnosed stage four, but because my liver was so full and so aggressive that they said, we have to be aggressive right back. I didn't know that there were other options. And then we had to tell a lot of people because I obviously took a leave of absence from my employment and to go through the chemo, not knowing what was going to happen on the other side. And as I said, thank goodness, my husband did all of the communication. He told our friends, he told our family, he ran the carrying bridge while I was in chemo and and wrote. And that was not an easy thing for him to do, but I literally couldn't talk about it. I would just fall apart. So he took on that really difficult piece. Sounds like you had a really great caregiver. It's all, it's also hard on them. I think sometimes we forget that they end up being our mouthpiece and our caretaker. And that's yeah. Great and he, he had a friend actually that came over who didn't live where we lived and had traveled in for something else. And that was a huge respite for my husband. There's just a couple of days with his friend where he could talk. 
in a way that he wouldn't talk to me, he wouldn't talk to his parents probably. And that was a big deal. So yeah, the support of the caregiver is it, throughout, not even just at the beginning, but throughout is uh, really very important. So Lisa, you mentioned that your family has a background in breast cancer. How do you feel like that shaped your perception of NBC? And how did you feel of sharing the information of your diagnosis with your family? As I mentioned, only my great aunt actually died of breast cancer. Everyone else survived breast cancer, I guess you could say, and moved on and died of other illnesses. Let's let's hear it for congestive heart failure at 95, everyone. Can we give can we give a shout out to that? That's like awesome sauce. So the great aunt that died of breast cancer, I remember, but I was quite young. Like I remember at seven or eight when Aunt Lorna died. And so more profoundly for me, it was not my family's experience with metastatic breast cancer because they all were in the dark, essentially. And so my mother really didn't understand metastatic breast cancer, even though she's had three separate local occurrences of breast cancer in her lifetime. But what really impacted me was the death of a dear friend of mine, Heidi Green. And she died when our boys were in grade three. And she died within nine months. And she was misdiagnosed. She was also de novo metastatic breast cancer. She was someone who thought that her bone mets were a pulled muscle and had been going to a chiropractor and massage therapy and acupuncture for probably a year prior to her diagnosis. And so her dying so quickly, and she had a very challenging time, was what I was thinking about. And then in terms of perceptions of my immediate family, it was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do is to take my husband through the process of me getting my diagnosis of stage four MBC. And thankfully, we had a rock star oncologist who's since moved on from where I get treated. But at the time, she was my oncologist and she sat both of us down in a phone call and explained what was happening. So I actually didn't have to tell my husband directly. My oncologist did, it, did the hard work. And then we took our time telling our boys uh, who were in college and a senior in high school. We told them that I had breast cancer, but we took a little bit more time, similar to you, Anne, until we knew what we could tell them and to answer their questions. I took a little time actually getting more of the details. I went directly onto an AI, which is standard of care for hormone positive breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer. And a few months of that, and it was looking like it was working, then we were able to disclose and open up that communication circle to more people. And quick after that, six months after my diagnosis, I was public to everyone at that point. Shante, you mentioned that you were or are a military wife and that you've lived lots of different places. Do you feel that moving around a lot, I'm not sure if you did it before or after your diagnosis, do you feel that moving around a lot impacted the way you shared your diagnosis with your family? So funny enough, oddly enough, by plan enough that my husband was transitioning into the reserves and he was in Korea and it was unaccompanied. So I didn't come with them and I was back home already. And home to me is the DC area, Maryland. And he came home. We was planning to adopt because our infertility was failed. I'm looking for an adoption agency and we wanted an older child. I'm a foster kid and I always honored getting older kids because when I got older, like after 10, no one wanted me. And so we always vowed to do that. And I put that on hold just to kind of give 
the results. I'm thinking it's another benign condition. I just, I might need surgery. Didn't think it would be this intense. So he was there from the jump. He came home and finished his tour career. He came home. I went and got all my testing done and he was there with the diagnosis. So being home almost was like divine. And the reserves was just the point of term. We were tired of just other deployments and just being separated and things like that. And in order to adopt, you needed to be stable. So now this is our time. And being a medical professional, getting this diagnosis, it's good and bad because, yeah, I know a lot of medical things, but I worked in labor delivery, like the happy part, I guess, if you were to say. And I don't know anything about oncology oncology and I'm very grateful that my doctor didn't take that for granted and yes I understand medical terminology but I have no clue on oncology that's not my specialty and when I got diagnosed they told me it was stage three I had an eight centimeter tumor and I had a cough I had this hip pain I had this rib pain I thought the rib was from snowboarding I thought the hip was sciatica and I always had back pain so I didn't put nothing together so I went and told my family, hey, and I told them in an optimistic way, hey, I got cancer. They think it's stage three. We're just going to do the standard chemo radiation mastectomy. It'll be over in a year and a half, probably. I'll be good. It's a plan. So when I approach it to them that way, they're like, okay, of course you get tears. And you absorb the information and we could divvy up the information to everyone. So I'm not repeating over, over and over. And we'll tell the head of each family household, say, hey, I'm going to tell you, disseminate the information to everyone else. But then when they called me back and said I had stage four, that's when my fear kicked in and anxiety. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm, I'm going to die. You know what I'm saying? And now I got to go back and tell my family that I have stage four Within a week's time, I'm then finding out I have breast cancer in general. And I gave them all this hope. And now I'm like, are they going to lose that hope? And I, I really contemplate not telling them. My husband was like, we got to tell them. I was like, we're not going to lose my hair. We're starting on the least invasive approach. They're not going to know. And it did take some time for me to even process I had stage four. And my husband listened and understood right away what it was. And I'm all like, can I still work? What's happening? What's going to happen with my life? He's very optimistic. We're going to try to give you a long living life, but you're on treatment forever. Um, still work. But I had to be put on crutches right away because the tumor on my hip was so large. I, I, I was liable to break. So now I can't work. So now I'm getting really depressed. So I did some research more to stage four and I have a little bit more access than some people to research articles. And I found in one of the articles, they said people have metastatic stage four breast cancer can live up to 15 to 20 years. And I promise you, I can't find an article anywhere. I don't know where I found it, but I remember that distinctly and my fear turned to hope. And now I knew how to approach it to my family because I'm like, I'm gonna be that statistic. I'm gonna be here for that long. I don't care what nobody say. I'm not dying. We're gonna get through this. So I approached it that way to my family. And they told me I was in denial. I'm like, I can't control it. What do you want me to do? I'm, I'm sad about it. I'm fearful about it, but I, I can't control it. They're like, you need to get a mastectomy. They told me I don't need to get it because of it's already spread. They don't understand. It's already in my bloodstream. They don't understand that I'm 
gonna never gonna be in remission. And they're like, when are you done? I'm never gonna be done. And even to this day, they don't understand the impact that it has on my life because I look, I, I function well. And unless they catch me on a bad day, that's when it reality hits them and they feel like, oh my God, oh, she do have cancer. You know what I mean? And when I approach it to them that way in a more positive light, they took it better, but it's still, it's, they still hurt. They all had side conversations with each other. My friends formed another group and, and, and things like that. And it's just, it's still almost like they still take it for granted because what I do. So they still demand a lot for me and because I am almost like the leader in my family, but it's frustrating. But until I tell them, I'm not feeling well, leave me the hell alone. Like they, they like, oh, okay. All right. But their perception is as long as I look fine and feel fine, I don't have cancer. I'm good. But not unless something is wrong. Like I had a scare with my pancreas because I have a colon cancer gene mutation too. And my pancreas has a lesion on it. And I'm like, shit, the colon cancer attacked that. Now I have two cancers. And I tell them that and then they get scared again. And it's almost like you're getting diagnosed all over again. The support flows in. It's just, it's just strange. It sounds almost like it's a work in progress that you are constantly trying to remind them or explain to them what's happening. Why do you think it is that they just don't grasp the whole concept? Because of the stigma of early stage and because I'm de novo and I never had, they never see me in that state where an early stage or where they see the bald head and the looking really frail and the constant nausea, vomiting, fatigue. And when they see me, I have a farm. And when they see me working on my farm, taking care of my chickens, still able to work. I'm only able to work once a week because that's because that's my capability. But because they still see me functioning day to day, it's almost like she don't have cancer. And I just, I don't think it ever gets to them until they see me when I'm not feeling well. And then that's when they like, oh, okay. Oh, what do you need? Oh, now you want to ask me, what do I need when in my day to day? Can you ask me that? But it's, it's just <laughs> right. doesn't, <laughs> it just right. doesn't impact them. They have never seen me in early stage yeah. and all they know is early stage. They don't, they can't correlate the difference between my cancer and theirs. And it's hard for them to fathom that yeah. I even have cancer. And I think when you're, when you have an illness, I don't want to say we're sick because I think that's a physical manifestation, but when you have an illness, and you don't look ill, I don't think people's brains can compute that for longer than about a day and a half. And then you're fine again. Mm-hmm. And it's that, do you, how often do you bring it up and try and remind people this is why things are happening? And how often do you just go, you know what? They don't need to worry about it right now. And thank you for saying I look, I appreciate yeah. it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a weird thing, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like all of us who are de novo, it's like we're carrying the weight, and I, I don't mean to over make it overly dramatic, but we're carrying the weight to our families and friends who may not understand the differences between early stage breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. We carry that weight of educating, getting them all up to speed on what that means for us as individuals, but also what does it mean for other people living with this disease? It's so overwhelming. So we're first of all, dealing with the grief of getting a stage four diagnosis. And then we have to communicate and educate really complex science in a way, or dumb it down enough to explain, there is no cure. We'll be in treatment for the rest of our lives. No, I don't have chemo yet. That's going to be probably towards the end of my treatment cycles. Right. 
Any more questions? Okay, back to the first. There's no cure. (laughs) I'm going to be in treatment for the rest of my life. And chemo will happen probably when I'm towards the end of my treatment cycle. So what about that? Do you not understand? I don't mean to be bitchy about it, but that's what, (laughs) I mean, with my own family, I swear to goodness. And I got to the point where I said to one of my two sisters, I said, okay, I can't do it today. I cannot translate that I've had another progression and what that means to my well-meaning aunts and beautiful mother who all are breast cancer survivors who do not understand. I can't do it today. So you're going to have to take that one on for me. Take it for the team because I'm done educating at the moment. I'm done. So not only are you educating other people, you're still trying to educate yourself, I would imagine, and learn about treatments and your diagnosis and what comes next. I can't imagine that must be incredibly difficult. I want to ask Shante and and Delta, Lisa, all of you, but Shante, you brought up the hope factor, right? And I'm curious where you all remember finding your first hope because we did, of course, what everybody does, right? You Google and then we see statistics and we started processing some of that and what little information we knew. And I remember getting a card from a cousin of mine that just had mentioned to her neighbor that this was happening. And the neighbor had said, well, tell her she's a statistic of one. And that was the very first time that I had a moment of not sheer terror. So Delta, when did you, um, do you remember that first time or when you felt hope? Yeah. So for me, I was sitting in the waiting room at my oncologist. And at that point I was still in a fog over my diagnosis. And I happened to pick up a magazine, one of the like cancer health or something. And there was, it wasn't even a whole article. It was just like this little blurb about statistics. And it just mentioned reading statistics about your diagnosis with the perspective, what you said, you are the statistic of one, like everyone's body deals with things differently. And um, just reading that kind of helped me to like it, like the blurb said, to just gain some sort of perspective and to remind me like one person's story is their story. My story is my story. Yes, I could agree because you get the statistics and my goal in life is to beat those damn statistics. <laughs> and I'm black and I'm young and I have advanced stage and by year three, I'm supposed to be dead. And so when I hit year three, I was like, hell yeah, I beat that. So bam, hope and the medication I'm on, I'm on a CDK inhibitor. And it was when I was on it, it was just FDA approved and my doctor took a risk and said, hey, I know you're not you're not menopausal, but I'm gonna make you menopausal so you can qualify for this drug and I'm gonna give it to you because it's orally. You only got to take it every day and you own it and I'm gonna give you injectables. So you only got to come here once a month. And even like my bone strengthening agent is is a one injection instead of the infusion version of it. And so he really pushed quality of life. And then the drug I'm on statistically then it's probably better now it the the progression free phase was supposed to be what two years max i'm on six years baby and so i that hope is always consistent and each time i beat something i'm like hell yeah 
I'm beating it. And I'm triple positive. And I know a lot of times people, and especially in the Black community, are triple, ne- are triple negative. I do feel some guilt associated with that. But I also, I do have options. And I'm still capable everyone to get those more options and more options so we can live longer and longer. But that hope is a continuous thing. And I have to remind myself. And I've already accepted my mortality. And so I think that helps as well. What about you, Lisa? So hope for me is a tricky thing. I'm a really optimistic person in general. That's how I roll in life. But I also balance my hope and my optimism for myself with the facts. And I'm on my fifth line of treatment now. And I also, just as Shante said, so with such grace, as I accept my mortality, absolutely. But I have hope that metastatic breast cancer is going to significantly improve the odds for everyone in our community within the next 10 years. It's really amazing to see where science is going. It is also equally amazing and frustrating to know and to see where it's still falling short and our friends are dying and they are without choices and treatment options towards the end of their lives. And yeah, it's hard uh, to balance optimism for the future of which I have boundless optimism, even in these really tough times that we're living in. But for myself, I feel my hope is measured, I guess I would say. It's balanced with the reality and the facts of what are my next choices in terms of my treatment. But I'm going to tell you this about quality of life and what Shante just said. That's been our treatment goal from the very beginning. And so I've had a really great partnership with all of my oncology team members that quality of life is always something that we work on. And I've had exceptional quality of life, all told, all in, on balance. I have nothing to complain about. I'll tell you that. And I'm four years in and I still have a pretty low tumor burden. And so we're just going to keep on trucking, right? I was just going to say, because you brought up the quality of life, and I think being diagnosed de novo and not even looking for an early stage disease, literally there was, we weren't looking for anything. It found us. That whole conversation about quality of life and, and, and weighing some of those decisions around treatment options has been a real education on my part in thinking about choices that people make. It's not I think Shante, you said with early stage you know, that chemo radiation and you go through hell, but you, there's another side to come out. I think that's an aspect of metastatic disease that a lot of people don't understand. Why wouldn't you just throw everything at something? And they don't get that quality of life conversation. I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but that's been a real education just for me and my own process of, oh, I don't have to feel like crap. I can go ask somebody to help me not feel this way. And that's been a real learning for me because you do want to do that sort of power three thing, like you said earlier, Shanta, and then just accepting that, oh, there's a pill for that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll take that. It sounds, especially with you, Lisa, your hope is based more on realistic goals. Uh, I think just from listening to you ladies, it sounds like if your quality of life is well, then it just helps with your day to day, which does give you that hope to keep pushing forward. Um, But I want to talk to Deltra real quick. So Deltra and I actually have something in common. We both have five children. 
And I know one of the most difficult conversations we have to have is trying to talk to our children and explain to them what's happening. Deltra, did you look to any, did you have any resources that helped you explain this to your children to share it with them? And and how do you explain an MVC diagnosis to them? So I would say, I don't know if you'd call it a resource, but my experience as a mom and specifically a homeschool mom, all of my children's lives set the groundwork. It was an easy decision for me to just gather all the information I could and share with them as openly and honestly in age appropriate ways. Like I already knew it wasn't anything I was ever going to try to hide to any degree. And I was just going to try and explain it as honestly as possible in ways that each of them could understand. My children vary in age from six to almost 16. Everyone's children have different personalities. So I wanted to make sure that I shared with each of them just a special time alone so I could deliver the news in a way that was appropriate for that child and so that they would have the space to express themselves without anyone else around. It was definitely not an easy conversation. I did have some help. I actually got in touch with the social worker at my cancer center and she connected me with some wonderful resources. So I had a couple different books on parenting with cancer. One really went into details as far as if you got a recurrence or just a stage four diagnosis in general and how to talk to kids about that and how to talk to kids if you were getting closer to the end. And it was really difficult to read all of that, but I wanted to just equip myself as much as possible so that I could have time to process things myself and be better able to have the emotional capacity to deal with their emotions when I delivered news to them. I think kids are pretty resilient and <laughs> my kids are a little weird too. So <laughs> I was like, are you sure you're all right? Like <laughs> overall, they were not like overly emotional, but they also are human. And so there's a grief there and a shock. And so I think they've all processed it in their own time since 2019. And it's hit them all on different levels and at different stages. And I've just gotten to be there and be a support for them. And one thing I've always done is make sure that they know facts, but they also have hope, just like the adults in my life who love me needed. Someone who's uh, passed away in the NBC community had shared that they shared it with their young children. Oh, think of the cancer like a roaring bear inside a mom. And the medicine that we give it is trying to keep it asleep. And it's just ongoing. And so I use that <laughs> metaphor to share with my youngest. And yeah, it's just been lots of ongoing conversations. I think of everything as an ongoing conversation. And I'm just able to be there and be a support and give them resources, connect them with other kids experiencing the same things, and always remind them that there's hope. We don't know how long I'll be here. And even when I'm not here, all the support that surrounds me also surrounds them. So there'll always be someone to fill the void. And I think that gives them a lot of comfort and strength. Shantae, you mentioned being young and being Black, that you were in a completely different arena than a lot of people who go through 
breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer. How did you find support or information or did you feel like you were able to find that? Being Black and young and and the resources weren't always there. And I got into advocacy because of that. I didn't see a lot of people who look like me. In in the Black community, we don't talk about this much and still don't. And it's, I don't mention it. I don't want to talk about it because it's affiliated with death or whatever. But I'm opposite. I was open about my infertility. I was open about my foster system. And I saw how much light that helped people. And I wanted to be that light. And Honestly, not until 2019, where I went to a conference, I didn't see anyone who had metastatic breast cancer and who was also young that was Black. And so what's that? Five years, four years outside of being diagnosed. And that was very eye-opening because then I felt like we were moving forward, that maybe more people are coming out more. And if I had anything to do that with that, I, I'm, I'm grateful. But resources I found through just standard looking up information cancer organizations. And my first really true resource was having a mentor. She had the very, and she's gone now, but her impact is still here. Her legacy is still here. And she told me she had the very exact cancer I had lived across the country in California, but still was able to feel right up and close to me. And she she introduced like the Facebook groups to me and she gave me like a really reality check. She was like, look, this is hard. This is a hard community and you will lose people who you've gone grown fond to, but make sure you're able to handle that before you jump into this type of environment. And that's, that still sticks to me to this day when I lose friends who are also metastatic and it helps me with the coping manner. But I always believe in having people legacy live on because they died, but they didn't die. You know what I mean? And getting resources with this, the community of NBC, learning new stories, learning how people cope. It helps me further my life and lifestyle. And so I think it's helpful. Just, I think the biggest resource is the people. How did you get connected to this woman to be a mentor to you? So I found it on a website through Tiger Lily was one. And it was under the resources link. And it has it was Emerman Angels, I think that what it was. And I called them and connected with them. And you feel like, what do you have? And they had someone call me. And then that catapulted everything else. So from her just being my one-on-one mentor, checking in on me, helping me understand the diagnosis that I have, helping me understand the treatments and helping me understand that I will get CT, just like a personal touch that really catapulted me to do more research on specific things where I probably wouldn't have known anything had it not been for her. Wow. But what a legacy that she left, right? What a gift to you. Mm-hmm. And Your- if, if I could say her name, it's Miss Patty Wu. Miss Pat, Patty Wu. I know some of you in the community knew her and that was my boo. Okay. Well, thank you, Patty. We're thinking about you, talking about you. You're still hanging around, doing your thing. You mentioned that you attended a conference, I guess was one of the circumstances or events where you actually started to see people who look like you. What was that conference? It was actually, it was Tiger Ladies and it was their first conference on disparities wow. in 2019. It was local in Washington, D.C. And really around that time, we wasn't really talking about African-American and any actually other ethnic groups 
And so I saw Asians there. I saw Indians there. So Black people there and white people of all colors and shapes. So that was the most diverse setting I was in. And then they was talking about the disparities and they had me speak about it. And just seeing, it was a lot of people's, a lot of, especially Black people, first time they were talking about their diagnosis in public. And I, I had been public already, but that was like a major impact on me. And just made me understand that I was talking about disparities from jump. My first speech was in front of Congress and I was talking about how African-Americans die more. And that I guess it's almost was taboo then, but it's really prevalent now. But the thing is that it, it needs to be known. But just to have that 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 support there and just the outreach and just the diversity, just really, I grew grew up in DC. It's nothing but diverse people here. And so not to see me or any other ethnic groups was just, I was like, what's happening? What is, what's missing? And how did you find support or information when you got your NBC diagnosis? We, we did a lot of Googling and a lot of research where my husband and I are both very data-driven, fact-driven people. And so we started looking up things really specifically. And I would say just from the science and medical piece, that was one piece, but I ended up reading a lot of people's blogs, which was good and bad because I would binge them (laughs) Right, and that's not so good, but you know, and I don't know her name, but Dr. I hate pink. And I don't know her last name out of California. Like I read her blog cover to cover and Barbara Bigelow and just trying to find people whose stories I could learn from. And that's how we figured out how to put together my chemo plan was reading, you know, people's stories about tips because the doctors give you one set of information and the nurses, but then really the most valuable information I have found is from people who've lived it in terms of how to deal with things. And then I think the other thing about being de novo is I gravitated really to organizations and sources that either said metastatic in the title, or you felt like when you looked at it, that's what you were reading was about metastatic disease. And I think that having never been early stage, I gravitated to those places where I felt like people were talking directly to me about me. And so I didn't go to some of the more traditional breast cancer sites because I just went right to the places that were putting it out there, what I needed to read. And and I think that might be, I don't know if that's a similar experience or not with, with you guys, but I think that's why I've gravitated to some of the organizations I have versus if I'd had an early stage disease, I might've had more of a community to turn to, might've had resources already in place to turn to, which I just simply didn't. Lisa, do you feel like because breast cancer had touched your family, did you have a good basis of information or do you feel like because it was metastatic, it's a completely different ball game? For me, it felt like a totally different ball game, and I basically had only experienced with managed disease, right? So this was a totally different ball game for me and for my whole family. I would say where I got my support, and I'm lucky, very lucky, in that I'm located, I, I live near, in between two really amazing cancer specialty hospitals, and they're leading research hospitals. And so I have privileges or I'm seen by oncologists in both locations. And one of those locations in New York City has a pretty robust support group for, and and I was able to join a support group within two months of my diagnosis, which was mandatory for me, but they don't normally let people into these support groups so soon after you're diagnosed. 
I talked my way in. I know that's a shocker. <laughs> I totally broke the rules. And I said, I'll be very good. I won't get traumatized by sitting here. And they didn't want me to join initially because they had just had a series of really tough losses. People died. And I said, it's okay. I need to know and I need to be there. And so they did relent. It was from that support group that everything unlocked for me. It's, it's like a who's who, if you will, of really amazing NBC advocates that are all part of that support group. And from those personal relationships, I was able to start finding my feet in advocacy pretty quickly. And I, I did that through both fundraising for only metastatic research, which was really important to me because once I started understanding more about the dichotomy and how like what happens in October, what happens with what, ha what does happen, everyone, with the money that it gets generated supposedly for to find a cure, does it really go to the right places? Once I started learning that and the onion layers started to unravel for me, there was no turning back. I had to absolutely get involved. I, I think I'm data-driven as well, but I'm also driven with a, a great sense of when I see injustice, <laughs> then hold me back because I'm going to get on that. I'm going to get on that and I'm going to uh, try to change it. So there's a lot of places in NBC advocacy where change needs to happen. And I just started to roll up my sleeves because I can't control that I have cancer. I can't control how I deal with it. I can control where I put my energy and I can certainly control how I communicate about it. So I do everything I can to control where I can. And so I was really lucky that I was accepted into a support group that really unlocked a whole community for me. And I agree with everything that it's better to know these, know our friends living in NBC land than not. My life is richer for all the people that I know. And it's even when we lose our dear friends, their legacy lives on in ourselves. So for all you ladies, I want to ask one of the big questions, something that I always wondered. What has surprised you the most about becoming a part of the breast cancer community coming in at stage four? I have an idea just from being an early stager, what I think that's going to be, but I want to see what all you ladies think. Anne, do you want to start? I think what has surprised me the most is, I'll just say it, how pink everything is. And Lisa's heard me say this before, but my first October I was diagnosed, I wanted to crawl inside my house and not come out because I couldn't have felt more isolated in what should have been a month where I didn't feel isolated at all. So the biggest surprise to me is that there is this incredibly large community and people doing what they think is the right thing to do. And I'm not going to argue with them that they're wrong. But for me, it was, I'll use my analogy. It was like landing in Vegas and the slot machines don't stop. It was just an assault on my senses. And that really surprised me. And, and it surprised me how much it, it affected me negatively. And so now, honestly, I dread October. It's my birthday month. It's my favorite month of the year because it's fall. But I just dread seeing all of it everywhere. It's like PTSD for me. I think that's very common with early stagers and metastatic women. It's just, like you said, it's everywhere. Just pink everything constantly 24 seven. And it doesn't, yeah. I don't I, feel like it makes you feel any better. It almost makes you feel like you're reminded of what isn't good. It doesn't make me feel better. And the thing that all I ask people in the month of October is if you want to buy the pink shirt or you want to buy the egg carton with the pink, that's all great. I just ask people to act intentionally, right? If it's important to you, 
for to support early detection to save lives, then make sure that's where your money's going. If it's important to you, as it is, I know it is to Lisa and me and everybody and many people to research, make sure that where you're giving your money is going to research. That I just really ask people to act intently in October and not just think you're helping by buying something or putting something on your car, make it mean something. And to me, that would make October a lot easier on me if I knew that the money going here, somebody chose it to go there, even if it's not the thing I would have chosen, but it was chosen. And, and I just, intention in October to me is really important. So a lot of things surprised me when coming into this community. Like, of course, Ann said like the pink washing, but I didn't even know it was a metastatic breast cancer day in October and different colors of reflection of it. And then also I, what surprised me because is this sometimes it's a big divide with early stages and stage four. And I was always wondering why, but it's this thing of stigma around, oh, you're scaring everyone with your diagnosis and we need, we don't need to be a part of that. And then the lack of research. So you hear breast cancer research. And so you think, and it includes like metastatic breast cancer and it doesn't. And you're like, what? And then you're like, the thought process is that, oh, they're dying anyway. So what's the point of putting any information or research or time on making their lives long? Like what the hell? Like, diabetic community does it AIDS community does it but why is I didn't know it was such a subcategory in the component of being stage four and just and me jumping right into it I just thought I had a it was just different perception it was a it's almost feel like a segregation in a way and I'm like but why is it like that and I, I really don't like it, but, and also I found what was surprising is that it's a small knit of us. You honestly, especially of advocates, you see the same people rotating over and over again. And I'm like, why isn't it more of us in stage four community being out? But a lot of people want to hide it and that's their right. Absolutely. But I just, for me, if I hide behind it, it's like, we can't get any change if they don't see it. You're seeing it a little bit more now and it has changed since 2015. But those things shocked me when I came into the NBC community for sure. Ashante, you, when, you say, when you say about hiding, it's so interesting because like I didn't get really involved in anything in the community for a couple of years. But I think being diagnosed de novo, what I tried to do was go back to the life that I had and pretend mm. like it could still be my life. And so I actually dove back into my life and tried to keep this cancer thing over here, like it wasn't going to intrude on all of my grand plans for life. And then once I realized that life had to be different, that I couldn't maintain what I had before cancer, that's when my head was able to get in the space for the advocacy. And I try to, I do more advocacy work, like on helplines and things like that. But I think sometimes maybe for Genovo patients in particular, you're trying to hold on to something that you, it takes a little while to figure out you can't hold on to it or it has to be different. Because I know I certainly dove right back into life and tried to just ignore it, which ended up meaning I was falling asleep after a long day of work, exhausted. But then once I got that switch flipped and I could go, oh, I can still have a life. It can just be slightly different. Then I was able more to say, how do I help? How do I get involved in the community? It's such a weird space to be that's an yeah. to me. 
Mm-hmm. Reinvention. Yeah, yeah. yeah, reinvention, exactly. What surprised me most, I think, about being metastatic with the differences between the different communities, say early stage community versus the NBC community, that there even is a differentiation between two communities. I was shocked by that, actually. And as I mentioned earlier about when I see injustice, I try to understand it, and then I try to do something about it. And it seems to me, I'm not suggesting that because there's this misunderstanding, perhaps, or um, issues around not enough allies that we would hope for, early stage allies to work with us, as Shanti was just saying, like, why aren't there more? I would say that is a wish of mine is to try to figure out and break down barriers with early stage allies, because we need those folks. And it's in their interest too to find a cure for metastatic breast cancer, because that's the only time that breast cancer will be cured. And that's in their interest. And maybe they aren't going to have a recurrence, but gosh darn it, a member of their family will, or their daughters, or their sons. And so everyone, early stagers and people living with stage four disease, we all need to work together. And for me, the not working together and putting our heads in the sand, if I'm an early stager and I've done my cancer treatment and I'm finished, respect that. And no one wants to live in cancer land when you don't have to. I totally get it. I have many members of my family who do not want to live in cancer land. God bless. But we need to encourage a few more early stage allies to help us so that we can keep moving the ball forward because we get sick and we are exhausted and we our voices are needed with scientists and researchers, and they need to understand what our needs are and what our treatment goals are. And we need to s- start looking at how we can fundraise effectively to the right places. All of that needs better synergy between early stage allies and people in the metastatic community. I have to agree with you 100%. That was something that I always noticed too, that there's this huge divide. And I think one of you ladies said it, like, I get it, I understand it, but I just, it's really very disheartening to see that there is such a huge divide in this community. Deltra, what have you noticed that surprised you the most about being in in this community? It's hard to say. It's the same things that others have mentioned, but it's hard to choose between the shock of realizing that there was a huge divide between early stagers and late stagers. I was truly not aware of that. And it felt, I don't know if isolating is the right word, to feel, oh, I'm not a healthy, like healthy person anymore. Now I'm part of breast cancer community, which seemed really awesome and lots of cheering and such. But then when my diagnosis became stage four, it just felt even more isolating. And October has always been my favorite month as well. And I've really been determined to keep it that way and try to enjoy it. I've only had two Octobers thus far since my diagnosis. The first one was (laughs) literally came up a month after my diagnosis and I decided to share uh, my diagnosis with, you know, the world, so to speak, I announced it on my social media on the 1st of October, right after my diagnosis, because I knew that I was going to want 
people to rally around me and give me support. And I knew I was going to want to speak out about it and dive into advocacy. So there was definitely no hiding my diagnosis in the plan for me. But all of the pink washing, I just wasn't aware of just how valiant that was. I always thought it was a good thing when I would see breast cancer awareness stuff and everything pink. And now it's definitely triggering seeing all of it and just thinking about, as was mentioned, how much intention someone actually put into the purchases they made and if they really know where their money is going. And I definitely encourage the people closest to me to make sure that their money is going to research because as Lisa stated, that's a win for all of us. Absolutely. But I, one thing I was going to talk about, because I know you you mentioned the guilt issue, and I hear that a lot with NBC advocates too. Obviously, those are the folks that we're all talking to, other fellow advocates. And, and that's so real. It's so real to feel guilty. I have dear friends who were diagnosed the same month as me. They are now dead. And, and they had the easiest two years. They had the most horrible side effects. And here I am. And so every it's all about perspective setting too, but I think it's a human, it's totally common or usual to feel, to, to have guilt. And I have jealousy at the same time. There you go. There's real. There's real <laughs> right there, Shante. And I yeah. understand that and I feel it too. I have guilt and I feel jealousy. Not for other people, but it's more for my friggin' body. Come yeah. on, people. Cells. Can you just throw me yes. a bone and give me a little bit more time on one treatment? Come on. I totally get it. I totally get it. I have guilt because I'm 55. You know what? I've lived a good life. And I have too many friends who are young and I just go, you know what? Just shoot me now. Because you know what I'm saying? There's this whole thing around yeah. when you know younger friends of, of mine who have this disease and I'm just going, just take whatever good cells I got, put them into that person's body and let's save their asses because that's who needs to live longer. No, that's real. And then I get jealousy over people who are early diagnosed and almost can't stop their treatment. I give, I would give six months just to have, without it affecting me, just to feel like how my old body was. And I know that early stages you guys get, have side effects long-term and stuff as well, but it's just, I just want a little bit of me back. And it's just, I feel jealous. I'm, oh, you're done. You don't got to go back to the hospital and mm-hmm. get lab work and get poking anymore. Yeah. Every so often now, maybe once a year. Oh man, I yeah. wish I could do that. Or if you see them ring the bell, I wish oh. I could ring the bell. I know, I know. Yeah. And then the whole thing around, I know, Anne, you said you never were sick a day in your life. And that was the same with me. The only time I was in the hospital was to deliver kids and Mm -hmm. that's it. Never sick. And then maybe that's why your body's still somewhat healthy because you started at, I think that has, I always wonder that I didn't go through the early stage Mm -hmm. slash and burn, so to speak. Sure. Did that mean I was healthier to take it on because I had never had a surgery? I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think a lot of early stagers realize that MBC patients are the ones who go through the clinical trials, who do try different therapies and different medications. And without those, 
And that research, it doesn't help anyone. So you guys are really blazing the trail for the rest of us to be able to have access to these, you know, life-saving treatments. So I just want to thank you ladies for everything that you do and everything that you go through and just how powerful your stories are. And I just, I think you all are just amazing women. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Miranda's friend, Delilah Hollabaugh, who died of NBC May of 2021, leaving behind three daughters still in school and a husband. This episode is also dedicated to Patty Wu, the mentor to Shantae that she mentioned earlier in this episode. All of these individuals who help us along the way make incredible impacts. Even if it's that voice across the talk line or even this podcast, we hope that all of those little connections make your day a little bit easier. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico. A huge thanks to Miranda Gonzalez for expert moderation of this panel and to Natalia Green for outstanding sound editing, original sound design and music from Sam Silverstein and Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Kristen Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our news blast, rate and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.